Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. And um, as a church, I think he's allowed us to, um, to do that very thing through the different ministries we have, uh, Vacation Bible School, uh, Children's Church, Little Lamb Preschool, and Awana, which will start up again in September. Uh, it, it is a good thing to be involved in the lives of children and in the lives of adults. All around us, there are people who don't know Jesus in the way that we do. Every day, there's an opportunity before us to share him with someone else. The question is, is do we have the eyes to see? Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We've looked at it the last couple of weeks. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word of God is certain, and we will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in all of our hearts. Would you pray with me once again before the ministry of the word? Father, we uh, are glad that this is your church and that you are at work here, that you're building this church. We thank you that you have reached us with the good news of your son, we thank you that you have given us that commission to do that same thing ourselves. We thank you, Lord, um, for all of your provisions in our life. We thank you for your spirit that dwells inside of us and enables us to live the life you call us to. And we thank you for your word, this wonderful treasure that you have entrusted to us that speaks to us the greatest points of our need. And it's our prayer that this morning, once again, we would hear your voice, and we would recognize that voice, and that we would embrace what you say to us, and we would endeavor to put it into practice in our lives. And we look to you to enable us to do that very thing. And Lord, it's for me, I pray. And I could simply be a channel through which your blessings flow this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now what are we here for? <laughs> I don't mean uh, why are we here in this building or what are we doing here today. I mean, what are we here for? Why do we exist at all? 
Now, I don't know how things are uh, these days, but I know when I was coming up, that used to be a pretty popular uh, question and a matter of debate uh, among college students. And it, it wasn't just uh, in the academic world either, but young people in general were asking that question. And I suspect that many of you, even those of you who are much younger than I am, even though you may not have asked, it for a long time pondered that same matter in days gone by. And of course, some of you are young enough yet that if the idea is still in vogue at all, and I can't see how it could not be, you may be yet in the midst of your contemplations. It is, after all, a pretty important question, don't you think? I, I know we can get to a place where we're busy just living our Lives. There's just so much to do and so little time, so it seems to do it all. But from time to time, don't those thoughts come back to you? At times like this, when maybe somebody asks the question, or, or at other times even like echoes out of your own past. And I know that people here in this building, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, would but answer that question in a way that's vastly different than, than those that are out there, those of the unbelieving world. And that's to be expected. I mean, we have much in common, but we view our very existence and humankind so differently, and we come to divergent conclusions. Not that I think that the question is easy even for us to answer, at least in some of its permutations. Oh, we, we know that God created us to have a relationship with him and that sin separated us from God. And we understand also that Jesus came in order to restore that relationship and we're so glad that he did, aren't we? And see, I, you know, I might not agree with it in its entirety, but I love the question and the answer with which the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins. Question one, what is the chief end of man, it asks. And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And of course, that's true. God is such that he should be glorified, and we were made to enjoy him. Nothing else we could ever savor could be like that. Nothing else even begins to compare. One could hardly wish for more once we've tasted it. That is why we exist. That is why we were created. And the glorifying and the enjoying begins the moment we come to Christ. Yet, couldn't we do that even better in heaven? All while escaping this rat race why is it after coming to Christ that we're still here? And so we have our question asked again only this time from a different angle. For what purpose has God, who undeniably loves us, well, for what purpose has he left us on this planet, which despite its joys exposes us to all sorts of unpleasantries? That question maybe is a little bit more difficult for us to answer. You know, some people would say that we remain here in order to be purified and made fit uh, for heaven. 
theologically, that doesn't track. Uh, because Christ's work on the cross was complete, we can add nothing to it, just as we can take nothing from it. As the Apostle John says, when we see Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It is true that God purifies us. The technical term is sanctification while we're here on this earth. That is, the process has begun here, but it's not completed until we're in his presence. And and the truth of the matter is it doesn't even have to start here. Think about the thief on the cross. He was with Christ in paradise that same day. Now, some might think, well, it, being here gives us a chance to earn rewards for our life in heaven. And, and in thinking that, they give their answer to that question a, a kind of mercenary twist, maybe even a strangely American turn. Yes, we do earn rewards, heavenly rewards, as we live out our life and just as certainly we lose things too. So our works, uh, not us, but our works are judged and the good ones survive and become rewards for us and the bad ones are destroyed at our loss. Not that this all evens out, you understand. Uh, it's to be hoped that the good things we do, the rewards we have will outnumber the bad things that we do. And yet, we should understand it this way. Since God has left us in our present existence, he rewards us for living right as we walk with him in this life. Still, that's not the reason that he left us here. And some of you who are of a more practical makeup or are screaming at me right now in your own mind, figuratively speaking, not out loud, well, of course we have to be left here. If every time someone put their faith in Christ, they popped, disappeared, why everyone would be running in the opposite direction. No one would ever come to faith. And, you know, I can't argue with that. And while that picture in my mind uh, has a humorous side, at least to me, it really is closer to the reality than anything else we have yet stated. The truth is, we are here in the midst of both the pleasures and pains of life. Not yet fully complete, though it's to be hoped that we are already glorifying and enjoying God and that we're in the process of being sanctified and even earning heavenly rewards as we walk with God day by day. Still, we are here for the sake of other people. We are here to bring people to Christ. God uses people to reach other people for Jesus, to help them to come to him and, and to find forgiveness and peace and joy and meaning for their lives. God doesn't use angels. Most people, if they encountered an angel that was undisguised, would run away in terror. Only those whose hearts have been specially prepared can endure their presence and even then, as the Bible records in a multitude of places, they tremble in fear while they're near. And even Jesus, to reach us, took on the form of a human. He became a man, actually became 
a man. And so he knows us inside and out. So that what he knew in his omniscience, he now knows after becoming a man as a feeling in the pit of his stomach. No, God uses us, not some spiritual entity to bring other people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And who better? I mean, that really is the genius of God. See, he takes a person who, who has been lost in sin, a person like me or a person like you, who, who knows both the attractions and the horrors of a life without God and who has turned from all of that and put his or her faith in Jesus and who has tasted the goodness of God to tell other people about him, to, to draw others, to persuade them and even implore them to escape and come to him, escape death and come to him who is life. And that is why we're here. Being here, there are many other things we do, but we ought never to lose sight of that truth. And sadly, it's far too easy to forget that we are here for others. Now, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about this idea. We've looked at the last verses in Matthew, which we read a little bit ago this morning, uh, which Christians have entitled the Great Commission. It's our commissioning uh, as believers given to us by our Lord, and it's great because of the need it addresses and because of the people it targets and because of the truth it conveys and because of the one who gave it. And two weeks ago from that passage, we learned six truths about Jesus, uh, among which were the fact that he meets us where we are. The disciples saw him on the mountain, but some doubted, and so he came to them and gave him his commandment and met them where they were. We saw that he had all power, and we also saw that he was God, and there were other things also. And then last week, from that same passage, we looked at kind of the nuts and bolts of the process, where to go. And once we make a disciple, we're to see that they get baptized into the triune name of the living God, and we're to teach them to obey everything. And once that disciple is made, as they're learning to obey, he or she repeats the process, making even more disciples, and on it goes. But we save the actual making of disciples for today. And in order to be clear, when Jesus says in Matthew there to make disciples, he does not mean that we're to force people to become Christians. Uh, that's simply quite impossible. You can't do that to force someone to put their faith in Christ. Christ draws them, and then they respond personally to the living God. And Jesus will have us no other way. He offers us a genuine relationship with him based on love and nothing else. Making disciples means we enter into this process where people are brought to the point of trusting Christ with really everything, their sin, their life, their hopes, their fears, their dreams, whatever it is that makes them uniquely who they are. And there really are three elements to this disciple-making process. There's the message, and there's the messenger, and finally, there is the master. And we're going to look at each of those three things this morning in turn. 
message, the messenger, and the master. As a kind of a jumping off point, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And I want you to join me there. Again, if you have your Bibles, it's great to turn in your own Bibles. You can see it. You can see context. You can make notes. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen on either side of me. And so we come to this passage. Jesus has already been crucified. He has died and he was buried. And now he's been raised from the dead. And for 40 days, he has appeared to his disciples. And just before he was taken into heaven, where he now reigns with the Father, waiting to establish his kingdom here on this earth, he told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as witnesses, we speak on behalf of Christ. So we're going to begin looking at the message. And I want you to know that that message itself is comprised of three parts. First, there's the bad news, and then there's the good news, and finally there's this call to action What are you going to do about it? And we're not going to spend too much time here because we talk about this often. I know you've heard me say it before, and I don't want to be too repetitive, but the message which Christians have is called the gospel, which means good news. As you know, most people outside of the faith uh, have never heard that term used in that way. When When they think of the gospel, they think of it as one of two ways, either as another term for the truth or, or that the thing the person is saying is really true, as in it's the gospel truth, man. Or maybe they think of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which highlight uh, the purposes of Jesus' life. And the first question, which generally generally asked when they hear that that word really means good news, is they say, good news about what? To which we answer that Jesus died to pay for our sins so we could have eternal life. Yet often the hearer doesn't understand. At least they don't see how that applies to them. And so really what we have to do is we have to make sure they understand that bad news and how it applies to them. Now let me summarize that bad news for you. Every person who has ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ has sinned. They have done wrong. They've lied or cheated or stole or dishonored their parents. They haven't put God first in their life. They've been angry. They've been covetous. Whatever it is. And although they may not realize it, their sin, even just one sin, separates them from God. And in being separated from God, it means being separated from everything else that is good. And that leaves only one alternative, and we call that alternative hell. And that's the place where the lost are headed. Moreover, there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. First, they cannot undo even one of their sins. And if they could see things as they really are, They would know that their sins are countless, and so they are separated from God. And secondly, they can't stop sinning. You know, the truth is most people outside the faith, the lost, think that they really could stop sinning. If they just 
made up their minds they could stop. But it's only when they really try that they begin to realize how difficult that it is and how powerless they are against it. And again, it means they're separated from God in a great way. And then if they're honest, they'll begin to dawn on them that they sin because they're sinners, that those things they do and can't even help but doing reveal who they really are, a creature that a holy God cannot abide. And finally, there is nothing in all of the universe but what Christ has done which can take our sin away and save us. And here we're given all of the time you needed and the ability to investigate every corner of the universe, you would find nothing but the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from your sins. That's the bad news. And a passage that we might turn to to communicate, that's Romans chapter 3, verse 23, very familiar. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when people begin to grasp that, then the good news becomes good news. And, and so we tell them the gospel. We tell them that because we are lost and we could not save ourselves in danger of eternal salvation, God sent his son into the world to die in our place, to save us because he loves us. And we can turn to passages like John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Or 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins and His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. We have been saved. And it's not enough just to know the bad news and good news. Each person has to act on it. That's where this call to action comes, the, the what are you going to do about it of the message. They can ignore it. They can go on their way, and that's a choice, and they'll bear the consequences of it. Or they can come to Jesus, and they can ask him to save them and be their God. And so we might turn to Acts 2.21 to prompt them to action. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So those are the three elements of our message, the bad news, the good news, and what are you going to do about it? And as we share that message, we are Christ's witnesses. And so you tell your story to illustrate that message. And you use scriptures often because there is power in the Word of God, and quote it, but sometimes, at least sometimes, turn to that passage so they can see for themselves that what you're saying is really written there. Now, if you don't trust your memory, then get some kind of help, a tracker, an outline, and keep it in your Bible. But even if you don't have one, and even if you cannot remember a single verse to point to, it is better to share that message than not. You are his witnesses. So that's the message. The next element uh, of making disciples is the messenger, and that means you, not just what you say, but who you are and what you do. 
Now in the Sermon on the Mount near the beginning, Jesus tells us who we really are if we're his followers. Those things that we call the Beatitudes describe us from different uh, aspects. So we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we're merciful and we're peacemakers. And he sums all of that up in two descriptive terms. He tells us that we're both salt and light. In verse 13 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, You are the light of the world. And so salt, by its very nature, purifies and preserves. And it also makes one thirsty. It causes us to desire water. And so our character as believers is such that in whatever situation we find ourselves in, if we really are walking with God, then we are purifying that situation. We're preserving it from further decay. And our presence ought to make people long for the living water, which is Jesus Christ. And as the light of the world, we reflect Christ's light to others. And as we do so, we drive out the darkness, exposing sin for what it really is. And that light brings understanding so that people begin to see things as they really are. And they begin also to see themselves as they really are. And that light drives out the fear that uh, festers in the darkness. The light of life begins to dawn. In other places in the scripture, we're, we're taught that we're ambassadors for Christ and God's making his appeal to others through us. We're told that we're a kind of letter from God uh, written on our hearts to a lost and dying world, that we're examples for other people to follow, that we are the uh, very aroma of Christ. And a little later in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us to let our light shine so that others will see our deeds and glorify God in heaven. There is power in the word, but there is power also in a life well lived. Sam and Flossie Gertz, members of my home church, were missionaries in Ghana and Nigeria for 40 years. They came home for retirement and continued serving Christ with their whole heart. We used to say then you had faith that was so real you could feel like you'd reach out and touch it. It affected everything they did. They never saw anything in life except that they saw it through that lens. If Sam was in the hospital, he knew he was there because God had put him there. And it affected everybody we met. And those of us who knew Christ would look at that and say, that's what I want to be. And it's more than just right living. You see, Sam didn't just live right. He loved it. He came out in everything he did, his love. So we must, too, love. And I guess the reality is, is if we are not loving others, we really aren't living right. It's love that brought Jesus to our world. It's what ought to motivate us. And it's the very thing that reaches the lost. For example, we, we love one another uh, as we should. Jesus tells us in John 13, 34, and 35 that that's proof that we belong to Christ. He says, there are a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. John reminds us, little children love one another because love is of God. 
my grandmother, Grandma Bacta, loved God and she loved her grandchildren. And because of it, she couldn't keep quiet. She would tell us about the Jesus she loved and she wanted us to love him too. And uh, no matter how early it was that I got up, and as a young boy, I got up really early. I was never up before my grandmother. I always found her out in the kitchen reading my Bible, and she'd see me, and she'd bring me right to herself. And she'd start to tell me about her Jesus that she loved. And then when she realized that I was getting antsy and wanting to leave, she'd let me go, but not before, encouraging me to read the Bible. She'd tell me where to read the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Love, she called it. And she said that with tears in her eyes. And it was her love revealed in those tears, which motivated me even as a young boy to begin trying to read the Bible and trying to understand. There is a power in a life well lived and motivated by God's love. At least it should be. Sin interferes with that. It's like a break in the circuit or a bug in the program or water in the fuel. It happens things don't work as they should. We find that we have no power and we find that we're ineffective in our living. And the answer to that, of course, is confession and repentance. And really, because of the battle of sin in our lives, that ought to be a way of life. I know you probably love it too, but I love 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it does not stop there. It goes on to say that God also purifies us from all righteous, unrighteousness. So that the text seems to be saying that not only does he forgive us, but he goes even further and he makes us more like Christ so that we can be salt and we can be light so that we can love as Christ loves so that there is power in our life which adds to the power of the message and the word of God. Making disciples involves the message and it involves the messenger. And finally, the third element is the master. So a disciple is a follower of the master and he obeys him and keeps his teaching. And for the Christian, of course, the master is Jesus. So we follow him even though it means denying ourselves and taking up our cross and we obey him, not just when it's in at convenience, uh, but in everything, even the hard things. We don't do it perfectly. We fail all the time, but when we fail, we confess and repent and get up and try again because he's our master. Yet this element in making disciples is more than that. It, it's more than just following the master and obeying him as important, as needful as that is. You see, the very work of making disciples is the work of the master himself. Making disciples is what God does. We simply join him in his labors. We cooperate with what he is already doing. And so Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that we are God's co-workers. He tells us that one person plants and another may water, but it's God who brings about the increase. Paul also reveals that God makes his appeal to those outside the faith through us as his ambassadors, but it's his appeal, and the work is his. 
It was Jesus who came to seek and to save those who were lost. He is the one who saves those who call on his name. He tells us in John 12, 32, that he will draw all people to himself. It's by his wounds that we're healed, by his blood that our sins are paid for. He it is who tasted death for every person. And then recorded for us in John chapter 16 and verse 8, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus taught his followers and us after them that the Holy Spirit would come and convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. That is, he would be getting the world ready for the good news. Well, in chapter 15 of the same book, Jesus reveals that when this Holy Spirit comes, he will testify about me, meaning Jesus himself, further confirming that the work of making disciples is the work of God. It is the master who makes the disciples. We simply cooperate with what he's doing. And yet we're a vital part of the process. You know, there's an old psalm that says, without God... He can't. Without us, he won't. And in that same section of John, as we just noted, Jesus said that we must also testify about him. We are his witnesses. Paul asked the questions in Romans, how can anyone believe if they don't hear, and how can they hear if we don't go? Revelation 22, 17 says the spirit and the bride, that's the church, that's us, they come. And let the one who hears say come, that's the believer again. Let the one who's thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And that's the invitation that you and I have responded to. And that's the invitation that we hold out to others. Making disciples is the work of God, but we're a vital part of the process. We go and baptize and teach and we proclaim the message and we, and we love and we live in a way that influences others. We are his witnesses and we're a necessary part of God's work. And because of that, and because it's so important, God himself empowers us. So the text we started with says that power will come upon us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and the result of that will be that we will be his witnesses, and that power will compel us not just to cross the street, but to cross lands and territories and countries and oceans and other barriers like language and culture. Ephesians 5 tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5 instructs us to keep in step with the Spirit. Well, Acts 2 records that the disciples were filled with the Spirit. They spoke to everyone about Christ. And then in Acts chapter 4, after having been beaten and commanded not to speak to Jesus again, we're told that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God calls us to work. And he empowers us to do it through his Holy Spirit. So we were told that we had to clear the section of Rome in order to make a life for ourselves and our families and other people. And, and we 
weren't given any tools, we'd be in despair if all we had were our hands. But if someone gave us a chainsaw and all the gasoline we needed, we'd have hope then that we could do what was needed. And so it is here. By ourselves, we are powerless, but with God, all things are possible, even for us, even for you, even for me. With God, we really can live the life we've been called to. We really can be his witnesses. We really can go and baptize and teach and live and love as we share the message. We can do our part and join God in his work in the world. We can make disciples. You know, there's just one more thing I want to point out, and really just briefly. I'm not really quite sure where it fits. I think maybe it fits either in the scope of the master's work, or maybe it fits within the life of the messenger. But it might deserve really a place of its own, if for no other reason than to remind us of its importance. Maybe we should add to the message and the messenger and the master. Maybe we need to add the means. For prayer really is also a vital part of reaching the lost. It was after they prayed that the Spirit came upon the disciples, both in chapter 2 and 4 of Acts. And some things come, Jesus tells us, only by prayer. I know I've said it before, but I will say it again and again and again. There is much that we can do that is good and will bring good results. But the most powerful thing, the most needful thing, the most powerful tool that we have, by which means love and power of God is released on this earth is prayer. There is the messenger and the messenger and the master and there is the means there's prayer. So I want to let the words of Jesus as we find recorded also in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount bring our time together this morning to a close as we listen and hear what he says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. The one who knocks Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good gifts to those who ask.
Let's stand and worship.